The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see folks here today. I feel like I'm becoming a stranger. I've been gone a lot. I was on. Uh, I taught out in Massachusetts in early May, and then I did my own retreat for the rest of May, and then uh, taught out in uh, Washington State for 10 days in July, and then recently again teaching out in Massachusetts at Insight Meditation Society. And Saturday, Common Ground's nine-day retreat begins that I'll be leading. So I'll be gone for the next two Sundays, just so you know. Fortunately, we have a great crew of teachers now that uh, are leading the programs when I'm gone. So I think... uh, the next two Sundays, Gabe Keller Flores will be teaching next Sunday, and then Kyoko Karayama will be teaching the Sunday after that. So I thought it'd be good to um, start today, just given, partly given what's going on in the world, but it's always like this, the injustice and the violence, and basically ignorance being acted out. And we have to learn how to use that word ignorance or delusion in a non-judgmental way, like normalizing the reality of ignorance, because the very definition of ignorance, human ignorance or delusion, misperception, is that we're not seeing clearly. The mind is not seeing things as they actually are. Instead, our mind, right? we should put ourselves right in the middle of this soup of delusion and ignorance. Our minds, we see things the way that our mind has been conditioned to see things. And that's true for every living being. We see things according to our conditioning. And the way each of our minds have been conditioned isn't necessarily wise. You know, It's like when we look back, on our cultural conditioning, how wise was that? How limited was that? It was pretty limited. Right? It was just what it was. We didn't choose the culture, cultural conditioning, the genetic conditioning that we received. But here it is. This mind, this heart, this movement of mind, right? Because it's not a static thing, our mind, our heart. It's very much an alive dynamic. But this very much alive dynamic is acting out its conditioning. This is a conditional thing we got going, how we're seeing the world right now, how we're interpreting our experience right now. And it can feel like we're trapped, right? And then we want to give up. I'm trapped by my conditioning. What can I do about my biases, my habits of mind? The way it is, it can sound Buddhisty to say that. You know, it's just the way it is. I'm just going to let go. <clears throat> but the path is to, on the one hand, recognize the conditional nature of experience, like the way, because if we don't recognize the conditioning process, like how the past is conditioning 
is affecting how this moment is appearing to the mind. It's not, we're going to assume that the way the world, the meaning that my mind is creating is the way it is, as opposed to it's a conditional arising. So the meaning, the perception, the thoughts, the view, the beliefs I have right now, that's a conditional process dependent on basically how the past has affected this mind stream. So in a very real way, how the world is appearing to me right now, how the world is appearing to you right now, arises is sort of how the past is affecting us. But to know that, to know that the meaning my mind is creating, the interpretation I have about what, who I am, who you are, what's happening, to realize that that's a conditional arising changes everything. Because now, when my mind makes up some meaning, oh, this talk's going pretty well, or this talk isn't going very well, or whatever the meaning the mind, why am I here? <laughs> you know, whatever meaning our mind might be creating for us right now, if we have that reflective, wise, mindful awareness that understands this is just what's arising. This is just what is being known in the mo moment. Not making the meaning the mind is constructing more than what it is or less than what it is, but just understanding. Then it's possible for us to begin to recognize how the mind is conditioned. There's no place where we can just say, you know what? All of that conditioning my mind got in the late 50s and through the 60s as I was growing up, I'm just going to download it. I'm just going to put it in the trash and then empty the trash. And then, because I know, you know, I don't we? We know that it was pretty limited, pretty, you know, biased, the kind of conditioning that we got about what it means to have a gender, what it means to have race, what it means to have class, what it means to be a human being. All these sort of things that then just become part of our unconscious expression in the world. We can't just dump it, but we can recognize it. And that's where real freedom begins. Not like somehow deciding, I don't want, you know what, I don't want to be a conditioned human being anymore. I don't want, you know, not only is it our culture, but even. Genetically, we have the genetic conditioning of reptiles and more primitive species, animals before us. We are just the continuation of all of that history, evolutionary history. That's also what's playing itself out here. Some of you maybe have read this book. It's made a big splash. I read the second book this author wrote first. He wrote two books, Sapiens. His name is Harari, an Israeli professor, uh, history professor. And then uh, his second book was Homo Deus, Humans as Gods. And he's just sort of looking at the history, how we got here. And the second book is more about where we might be going. <laughs> and this, uh, this guy, though he doesn't make a big deal of it, he's a very serious meditator, Buddhist practitioner. Um, and you could tell that sort of naturalist, view is kind of deep in his writings about history, about 
what it means, what is being a human being, what is this the continuation, the very natural, lawful continuation of? And it's only by learning to see it that we can have some freedom. Because when we see impulse, when we see these implicit biases, when we see the way the mind is conditioned, then the mind, because of that space of wise awareness, knows, yeah, it feels like this. That compulsion feels like this. That conditioning aspect of the mind to interpret, to perceive the moment in this way, to construct meaning in this way. I mean, if you haven't seen this in your intimate relationships, you're probably not in an intimate relationship, <laughs> right? Because I don't know if you, about you, but like when you get in a deep friendship or a romantic relationship, intimate relationship, one of the first things we see is how our mind tends to construct meaning about the other person, about the friend, about the partner, about the lover, right? And a lot of that's pretty neurotic when you have some space, like when we're in the middle of it and believing the meaning the mind is creating about the other person, we don't see it. But when there's some space of awareness, the space of mindful awareness that we're training the mind in, in our Buddhist awareness practice, then when I notice the meaning, you should be taking care of me. You should be treating me the way I want you to treat me. You know, why aren't you the way I want you to be? It starts to stand out like, well, that's interesting, right? <laughs> that neediness, that dependency, that sort of weird expectation that instead of per the person being who and what she or he or whoever they are, why aren't they the way we thought they were should be or expect them to be? They're not who we want them to be. They're who they are. They're their own continuation of all of that conditioning that, you know, whatever it was that made make them who they are in that moment. Expressing the very naturally, very naturally expressing the conditioning that they have. And then our response, the heart, the mind's reaction to what is being seen, what is being perceived, Interp the interpretation the mind is constructing, then that's our business. Oh, this is what's coming up. This is what's being felt. This is the meaning my mind is conditioned to construct about what's happening right now. And we learn to hold it lightly. One of the essential teachings, you know, if you were going to distill what the Buddha taught, because there are, of course, many books of the different discourses from the Buddha. Many of these sort of were retold because it was an oral tradition for about 500 years before things were written down. And even, of course, after things were written down, you know how things change. You played that, what's that game called? Telephone game where you whisper one thing, someone starts the conversation, but it's one person to another. And you see by the time it goes through 12 people, it's a different story. It's a different whatever. So you can imagine generation by generation, both initially as an oral tradition, despite the intention to keep things clean, you know, things get changed and modified in different ways and we'll never know completely. But 
nowadays with scholarly techniques, they have a little bit more of a sense of the original voice of this person we refer to as the Buddha. This person, Buddha just means someone who's awake. Right? So he, that was a title mostly that got put on later. You know, initially he was referred to as the peaceful sage, you know, the wise guy who has a, seemed to have a really peaceful vibe, right? And that's what people were called, like in the early, early tradition, people who had some fruits in their practice, they were referred to as being peaceful. Peaceful with the conditions, the changing conditions of their life. They didn't get these sort of, you know, metaphysical labels or, you know, they were just referred to as the peaceful guy, the peaceful person, the peaceful woman. Oh, that person's really seems to be at ease with the conditions of her life. And when they dug a little deeper, tried to get a sense of what made the person peaceful, what the other essential teachings that you can distill from these early teachings is no need for fixed views. In fact, fixed views always correlates with a tight, (coughs) suffering mind. And third thing was a radical shift in the mind, the way the mind or the way the heart relates to sense experience. So an ordinary person, like the way we are most of the time, we sort of expect sense experience to save us. Yeah, my knee might be hurting, but pretty soon I'll be home and I'll have lunch and I can eat what I want to eat. So we sort of dangle some pleasant sense experience in front of us and helps us get through the difficulty that comes with being a human being, the ordinary difficulty. And so we live our life with the hope that we'll have enough pleasant sense experiences to seem to make life make sense, right? And the other thing that we find, right, so when you distill the teachings, the path is about peace. Those people who've gotten somewhere on the path are peaceful with the changing conditions in their life. Having a fixed view correlates with human suffering. Releasing, going beyond fixed views, seem to correlate with having more of that peace. And the third thing, people who are peaceful have changed their relationship to sense experience. They're not averse to pleasant experience coming their way. They've just begun to abandon neurotically being dependent on the pleasantness in life. If pleasantness naturally comes their way, someone offers you, you know, what you like, you say, thank you. As long as it's not causing yourself or others um, suffering, you accept the pleasant. But I just noticed Tom's t-shirt, saving the world from the zombie apocalypse since 1946. (laughs) whatever that means, (laughs) CDC, Center for Disease Control. Good. I love it. Right? So when things come our way, like the zombie apocalypse, right, we don't get tight. It's like (laughs) we do what can be done, maybe not much. But we don't get tight. 
right? Because we realize that getting tight, even about something as extreme as a zombie apocalypse, right? It doesn't help getting tight. If there's something we can do, we do it. This is true in terms of having knee pain or getting a bad cold or having cancer, losing a loved one. If there's something we can do to ease their way, well, we do it. But if there's nothing we can do, we practice not being tight when there's nothing we can do. Because that's something we can do. We can be at ease no matter the conditions. So this is this radical shift in how we relate to sense experience. Instead of thinking that happiness or peace depends on having nice sense experience, we realize peace is a function of relating to whatever the sense experience is in the moment with non-attachment. Right? So that's the new way of relating. We're still a sensory being having sense experience all life long. That doesn't change. In fact, as we practice more, we become more sensitive to the pleasantness and the unpleasantness and neutrality of experience. Right? Because we're more awake, we're more alert, we're more relaxed. We feel things more clearly. But we're training the mind not to believe the story that if a nice sense experience comes, I'll be happy. Or if a bad sense experience comes, I'll be unhappy. Because that story turns out not to be true. It is true that if a pleasant sense experience comes my way, there is the ordinary pleasantness of that sense experience. So I'm not denying that there's in this world pleasant and unpleasant experience. I'm just starting to realize, right, because I practice, that when pleasant things happen, it doesn't really change things that much. And when unpleasant things happen, it doesn't really change things that much. We've had a lot of unpleasant things happen to us, and we've had a lot of pleasant things happen to us. But life just keeps happening. And this is a profound shift for us to understand this part of practice, this fruit of practice around peace. It's about peace with things coming and going. It's around realizing that a fixed views are a cause for stress always. Even having a fixed view about this, what I just said, doesn't help. Right? Like if you decide, I'm going to go home and get up on my soapbox and tell everybody how fixed views are the cause of suffering, and you get really fixed with that, people won't want to be around you. <laughs> right? So that not holding tight, staying open, it's a kind of humility, but a very, not a weak kind of humility. It's really an understanding that allows us to navigate life as a human being. And this shift from thinking that sense experience is going to lead to lasting happiness to realizing that non-attachment to sense experience actually leads to real happiness. You see, it's a very big shift because otherwise we're, we're pursuing that dream life, whatever that looks like. It's different for each of us. Some people it might be the house in the perfect suburb. 
Other people, it's the trendy condo right in downtown, you know, the right kind of partner, the right kind of lifestyle, the right kind of group of friends, right kind of attitudes, right kind of body, right kind of world, then I'll be happy. So if we think it's about sense experience, we put all of our hope in that basket. Yeah, when I get all of this, which means when I get rid of all of that, then that will be lasting happiness. And this is what we do, and this is how we justify causing harm to everybody else. Because you're in the way of me getting to that perfect set of sense experiences where the world will be just the way I want it to be. This other way is realizing non-attachment. Well, this is how it is. And is it possible for my heart to be intimate, for the heart, the mind to release into this stream, this river of seeing and hearing and feeling and talking and thinking and this movement we call life? Can I let this movement move without the resistance of attachment, without the fear of attachment, the greed of attachment, of clinging, of grasping. Is that dangerous to really move into the movement of life, release into the movement of life? What comes from that way of non-attachment? And this really goes, I've been talking recently about these four distortions, because it really, the problem arises, you know, the Buddha locates the problem of human suffering with ignorance and delusion, thinking that we know. The sense of certainty and the mind's dependence on being certain, even if what you're certain about is sort of a, has a lot of self-hatred, like I'm no good, you might have that as your fixed view, or I'm better than the rest of you, that might be your fixed view, or you could be fixed on the idea, I don't know, You could be fixed with that too. But it's really about the mind using meaning, its constructions, the way it construes things, conceives of things, and then fixing, becoming dependent on that as being true. Because as the Buddha said very clearly, no matter how we construe things, no matter what kind of meaning, kind of interpretation we have right now about who I am, the way it is, it's never going to be that way. The meaning the mind, the conceptual meaning the mind constructs will never be the way it is. So if we're looking for safety in having the right idea, the right belief, we're going to be endlessly frustrated and we're going to also be endlessly dependent on warding off people who have different fixed beliefs, different fixed ideas, different ways of making up meaning, different values, right? And then we're at war with these different people and at war with their own doubt and different ideas we have, right? This is this whole world of uh, different words from Western psychology like cognitive dissonance, where because we've been believing, interpreting, thinking a certain way, 
then we're playing defense at anything that challenges that view. Or implicit bias, I mentioned, cognitive biases, these habits of constructing meaning a particular way. Another common term in Western psychology is confirmation bias, where we tend to interpret or recall information in ways that, what does it do? It reinforces the status quo of the mind. And so we're looking for safety, right? We're all feeling deeply, mostly unconsciously, a lot of existential uneasiness. Just being in a world where we know, whether we admit it to ourselves, we know we're born and die. We know that things can change. And we have evidence of this. There's a lot of research now in Western psychology. You can even subliminally remind somebody of death, just like they're looking at some, you know, something on a computer screen. And then in a very quick flash that the person doesn't consciously see, you just have the word death. Right? And they're just seeing bunnies and rabbit, I mean, and foxes and just different animals, one slide after another. And then very quickly the screen flashes the word death. And then just continues with animals, you know. And then they have the person do something. So they've been subliminally reminded of something that should be commonplace, like death, right? Or the zombie apocalypse, or whatever it is. And then you ask the person to do a normal task, like, uh, we'd like you to evaluate these four people, you know, and they give like four resumes. And the people who had the word death flashed evaluate those people more harshly than the people the, who didn't see the subliminal message death. So every time we hear of a terrorist attack or we hear of this or that, or we hear about Cousin Johnny dying or whatever it might be, somebody being in a car accident, someone losing their job, some teenager, friend of yours with a teenager who's not behaving, or you know whatever it is that sort of reminds us of the fundamental insecurity, uncertainty in life, then this conditioning reasserts itself to be afraid, to be tribal, to be, you know, kind of be more dependent on certainty, more dependent on things that are familiar, more afraid of difference, right? It just happens. So these sort of ways the mind the sort of implication of the mind being dependent on mental construction, on concept, on meaning, on beliefs. It's very interesting in this book I mentioned before, Sapiens by Harari, this Israeli history professor. He talks about, like, I mean, because there are humans around for a long, long, long time. When you look at sort of what we would call civilization or large groups of people working in conjunction, <clears throat> there was a real shift when we could work together in bigger groups of people than, you know, a small clan of 30, 50, 60 people. And the big shift was when we learned how to share conceptual meaning, right? Basically create religion, create nationalism, create ideas that were the rallying cry that held the group together more than were related, you know, like we share genetic material together. <clears throat> so 
and they, they, you know, you can really see this, like when you look at chimpanzees, and when you look at their genetic code, surprisingly close to ours, genetic, genetic code. But there's something we can do that they can't do, and this is we can get attached, our minds can cling to conceptual meaning around things like nationalism, race, religious beliefs, basically any kind of concept. And it can be, we can show up. I may never have seen Joe before, but if we have this shared belief, we can include each other very quickly. Right? We, there's code. We know, you know, as a white person, I can go to almost any sort of white area, suburb, let's say, in any town in the United States, and I'll, get, I'll fit in pretty quickly in that culture. Just because I know, I know the code. I know how to fit in in that. We know where we belong. And this is this, you know, this is totally how big organizations like the military and bureaucracies, corporations, social organizations, even a place like Common Ground. This is how we operate. There's a certain belief system that we share. Now, if we're really interested in what the Buddha points to, we're bringing that all into the light of awareness. And it turns out to be really disconcerting to start seeing this stuff. It's the sort of proverbial, let's just keep that behind the curtain. Because once we realize how, we, uh, how the mind relies on meaning to sort of create safety, then there's this fork in the road where we're realizing that needing meaning to feel safe creates essential existential uneasiness because the meaning the mind creates and shares with other beings constantly has to be renewed, as I mentioned earlier, and is constantly under threat by people with different meaning that they're constructing. Learning to be in the moment without the mind being dependent on the meaning it constructs really frees the heart up. Does it mean that our mind somehow loses the capacity to go home with Grandma or Auntie Joe or whoever it might be at Thanksgiving or next time you gather with your whole family and that sort of tribal meaning that that family has? You still know how to play the game, right? You know how to exist in the world of conceptual meaning, to talk the talk, to play the game, and to not be confused by it. And to begin to see how some of that meaning really causes suffering because it's based on oppressing other people. And how other meaning is relatively neutral. It's just meaning that we construct shared you know, shared passions. It doesn't have to be a problem. It doesn't have to be grounded on sort of evaluating people as being better than or worse than. So it's not that all meaning is toxic. All conceptual meaning is toxic. Some of it certainly is. We know, we see it especially today with events like in Charlottesville last weekend, which of course is going on all the time. But Every once in a while, it just becomes a little bit more obvious to us. And so the Buddha organizes these habits of misperception 
these habits of thinking about our misperceptions and then these the process of misperceiving and thinking about our cognitive distortions, they get ossified into fixed views, into beliefs uh, that are unquestioned, right? And so this is a feedback system. You know, the ancient story that's told is you're walking at dusk in the woods and you see a little curved shape and you think, snake, right? Because probably genetically, our mind is conditioned to be very sensitive to a curved shape like that on the ground, right? Because a lot of snakes throughout our history, evolutionary history, have been poisonous. So we don't go any closer. We have that initial perception. We run, right? Because that's our initial perception. But we don't stop there. We don't, you know, what a skillful practitioner might be, well, that might have been a snake or it might have been a rope. But generally, we're not that balanced. Generally, we go, I think that was a snake. And then we start to recall, like this is how the past informs the mind. Like I actually remember reading a couple years ago an article about how many people have, have had snakes and then have released them. This was in Florida. So now the Florida Everglades have a lot of these snakes that are not native to North America in the Everglades in, in South Florida. And they're just taking over and, of course, really changing the ecological balance there. These, I think, mostly like boa constrictors and pythons and things like that. But anyway, even if it's like has nothing to do with being in Minneapolis, that article will come to mind. These idiots who have these pet snakes who then can't handle them and just decide, I'll just put it in Como Park or Theaterworth Park or, you know, Lake Harriet or, you know, they're, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, and we go on, we start obsessing about like, I bet you're one of those people. You're an artist. You probably had a pet snake, right? Yeah, idiots. And we go, and this is like what builds the cognitive dissonance. It's like the more I think about the misperception, the more true, the harder it is to challenge it. And eventually, even if somebody came and said, you know, we've done we've done some serious research where people walking hand in hand has walked through the park and we haven't found any poisonous snakes, any snakes that weren't indigenous, you know, anything but gardener snakes, king snakes that are indigenous to the Sarah. We haven't seen any. We'd say, you know, you idiots. <laughs> you know, you didn't see them because you didn't think they were there, right? You just confirmed your own belief. We can be that deluded in assuming that Oh, you're, you have a fixed idea that there are no poisonous snakes in the city of Minneapolis. You know, you're deluded by your own belief system without ever wondering whether that's true for us. We never shine the mirror back and realize how all of our thoughts, all of our beliefs, perceptions are tenuous, sometimes slightly more clear, sometimes less clear, less grounded in the way it is. But the more we pay attention, it's not so much that we're free of these perceptual distortions, distortions of thinking, distortions of view. It's just the more we realize how much of this is constructed. The meaning the mind gives to our lives is a construction. 
It's an imperfect construction, and that makes us humble. It doesn't mean that we don't have discriminating wisdom. We just understand the limitations of our discriminating wisdom. And that's just the world we live in. And it makes our heart really tender because we realize that I can't depend on certainty that ideas give us like I'm right. I can't depend on that for safety. I have to find a different refuge. And this is the refuge of letting go. The refuge of non-attachment, non-clinging. This turns out to be a very satisfying refuge for the mind. Where we're a human being, we're in relationship, but we know we don't know. I have to tell you, like even just to give a really specific example, now being married, we're living together since 91, married since 93, with my partner, um, but finding, like, instead of needing to be sure that this is the person I'm supposed to be with, it's like being sure that I don't know. It's like so much more stable in the relationship. Like, knowing that I don't need to know. So we say, I mean, it almost sounds like a cliche that we're living moment by moment, day by day. This is a big statement in the recovery community, right? Day by day, one day at a time, moment by moment. We live our relationships. We live our meaning, whatever meaning our mind is constructing. It's not like we try to stop constructing meaning or stop having views or opinions. We just realize they're moment by moment. So we might feel real disgust. We might feel really touched and moved and have a momentary thought, what this person is doing is great. I am so inspired. Or what this person is doing is despicable, is the cause of so much suffering. But the mind isn't dependent on that idea or view being true. It's just a moment of clarity, whatever that clarity was, however limited, however refined that clarity was in that moment, it just what it was what it was. And then there's the next moment. We're not imposing continuity. So how, but just because we saw it this way in this moment, we might see it differently in the next moment because we're open to everything that's informing each moment. Our ideas, the meaning we give life, is a fluid changing thing. We're learning not to be dependent on something being fixed and true forever. We're learning to take refuge in the putting down of attachment. That's all we're putting down is the fixedness of our ideas, the certainty. And realizing that we can be just we can be a greater advocate for ourselves for what's just in the world without attachment. We don't need to meet the certainty and the fixedness on the so-called other side with our own certainty and fixedness. We can actually see the certainty we perceive in the other side, like they're what seems to us to be their fixed views. We can see it for what it is because we know that experience. And we can see how it's a cause for suffering. And we can see how it doesn't help 
to react to fixedness with fixedness. We don't have to be attached to the idea that they're wrong. We can just see it for what it is. Oh yeah, appears to be a cause for suffering. Appears to be the cause for misunderstanding what's happening here. And then our response comes from that deeper place. Instead of superficially thinking that we have to oppose attachment with attachment, that that's the way forward. So it's 11.45, we only have a few minutes, but it'd be nice maybe to hear one or two voices, some reflections, your response to what I've said or question that you might have. Anybody like to, yeah, Sintelay. So um, I'll just tell, start with a brief story. So yesterday I was partaking in all the sense pleasures of the dominant culture and, you know, happily kind of not thinking about a lot of stuff that's happening. And so I ended up at the house and um, just about ready to go back to sleep, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. And, um, you know, so I just checked my phone and I looked at an email and I looked at a slight name and an article. I tapped on that New York Times. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I tapped on it. And, um, and so I, you know, they have those apps where you can monitor your heart rate and I felt it rushing, but automatically I went from like, like calm to like my pulse rate was like at 90, like 15 minutes after I looked at something for like three minutes. And so like, like being, you know, having, particularly being a person of color, like it's so much on our body. And so what I ended up doing was basically like putting on some yoga nidra and going to sleep. I mean, I know I probably misused it, but if it put me right to sleep. <laughs> but what is a skill just knowing like how much your body is going to be triggered with so much adrenaline? I haven't actually moved like and the pulse goes up so high and then I can, you know, observe it. So that's my question yeah. about like how to deal with that. Yeah, and this is especially relevant for people who um, have trauma in history, which like people of color in this country for sure, a lot of women probably just being raised in a patriarchal culture, other people who have been abused through economic injustice or whatever it's been for all of us, most of us in some way or another. If you're in the place where that trauma is going to be touched and brought to the surface, we have to realize that Looking at triggers, we want to be intentional about looking at triggers because sometimes we end up looking at triggers because of habit. It's like we can't not look at the trigger. But we want to be conscious about is it useful to look at what might be triggering all of that old trauma because of history. Because we can be skillful without re-traumatizing ourselves over and over again. And this has become now a cultural habit. Even those of us with less sort of historical trauma in our past, just by how we use news, we start to get identified with the intensity that comes from self-righteousness, from anger, from rage. And we start to associate that with being alive, the intensity. And that's not so helpful. And that's why we have a greater polarized nation because we're re-traumatizing ourselves. I think it really came more to the surface after 9-11. I fortunately was out of the country for five months on retreat 
at that time, I missed a lot of that re-traumatization that happened with the replaying of the news over and over again. And then, of course, it's just continued. And then now it's, you know, part the healing, hopefully the healing, bringing up the racial injustice, other kinds of injustice. But not all of that is healthy when those of us constantly are re-traumatizing ourselves. So remember, the real work of healing almost always comes when people feel relatively safe, not perfectly safe, but we have to be relatively safe to learn how to be with the enormity of the pain without tightening around it or with it. So whatever you have to do, whoever you have to surround yourself with or yoga nidra tape that Zinzalai talked about, you know, putting on something that calms the nervous system down. Because basically when our fight and flight, that stress response in our body and mind gets activated, we're a frightened animal. And either we're going to strike out or we're going to close down, but we're not really good for some of the more subtle healing work that actually needs to happen. So the best thing we can do is we can ask ourselves, honey, what do I need to be able to respond in a deeper, from a deeper place, a wiser place, from a place of non-attachment? What will bring me or turn me, turn the heart in that direction? And then you just explore. You know, you use what you have at your disposal, whether it's being with close friends, but basically it has to do with safety. Now remember, this is a temporary strategy. We're using safety so we can do the difficult work of healing whatever needs to be healed in all of the concentric circles of our lives. So not just feeling responsible for the globe, the history of global injustice, but just beginning with our own particular wounds that we're carrying because of who we are how we're raised, the conditioning we received, and then outward in our family circles, closer community circles, out into the world. And it's when we don't have the support for the safety that we basically spin our wheels. We want to evoke healing, but we're not really doing the healing. And this is why, like, a lot of us wrongly thought, oh, we dealt with that, right? I mean, how many, just culturally, we thought, okay, civil rights, 50s and 60s, right? Or women's movement, you know, economic justice issues. And then only to realize, not only is that healing work not done, but we, be, we could easily be going in the wrong direction for some of this stuff. And certainly it's mixed, right? It's like maybe one step forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. It's all over the place. And so the missing ingredient is the safety. And this is why in Buddhism, a lot of people misunderstand the Buddhist teachings because they think because of the emphasis on sitting still and getting into a really tranquil place, they think it's about retreating from the world of justice issues. But it's actually about addressing the causes of suffering, but realizing that the deep calm and tranquility and the deeper states of love, more pervasive states of universal love that you can access, 
in meditative states. It's what allows us to be a parent and a citizen and a lover and all these, you know, really deeply difficult things. People interested in addressing racial injustice and economic injustice and sexual gender injustice. We should probably end it here. I'm really grateful you brought that up, Zinzile. Just take a few moments to let go of the words. Yeah, maybe pass the mic over to Tom here. Just take maybe 20 seconds to let go of the words. And just reminding folks that the center operates on this spirit of dana, this circle of giving and receiving. So once a month, usually at the end of the month, I just remind folks to get information if you need it. And we don't talk about money much and we don't have suggested donations and we certainly don't have any fees for any of the programs at the center, including our residential retreats, because we want to continue the circle of giving and receiving. So practice receiving everything you get from being part of the community as a free gift. Let it make your heart happy that it's given freely because of all the volunteers and all the contributors that have supported the center in the past. And then if ever you want to give back, let that be a free gift because it makes you happy. And uh, just see me or any of the volunteers if you have questions about how that all works. There's a sheet out by the Donna table. You can read that. It gives you a little bit more information. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.